Thanks for tuning in to Mindful Voices, conversations you want to hear, brought to you by Applied Mindfulness Training. In each episode, host Michael Carroll, author of Awake at Work and founder of The Wisdom Seat, sits down with a different guest to connect for an open, honest, and curious conversation about how they've applied mindfulness in their work and in their everyday life. Today's guest, Andrew Hyman, is a consultant at Bain & Company, a firm that provides advice to public, private, and nonprofit organizations. He's also the president of Applied Mindfulness Training. Andrew and Michael talk shop about what exactly does a consultant do, and reminisce about Andrew's father, Patton Hyman, founder of AMT and a close friend of Michael's. Now here's your host, Michael Carroll. You know, uh, Andrew, before we get started, give me just a little background on your uh, practice. What 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 uh, What is your relationship with the meditation practice? I'm just wanting to get a quick headline there. Sure. So uh, I have been meditating since I was six years old, starting with the direction of my parents. Right. Um, I started with Shambhala training at the age of 10. Um, you actually taught my level two in 1999 at Karma Scholing. I don't know if you remember that up in the uh, the little attic. Yeah, I remember room. that room. Well, did, yeah. was, it, was it any good? Did I, was it any good? <laughs> it, it was good. It was good. You, you, uh, you have a very charismatic style, and I still remember your story about the dog in the apartment barking around nonstop and <laughs> fixating on you whenever you walked in the door. Nice. Um, <laughs> so I've been a, a longtime meditator. I would say my meditation practice starting I, – I, so I, I meditated quite a bit through high school as I was deeply involved with Shambhala training, doing all the levels up to, um, gosh, Drala. It changed at some point. And, and then I, I basically sort of did not practice very much during college and came back to it immediately after college where I finished up the, the rest of the Sacred Path of the Warrior up to Golden Key. Right. And, um, and then I maintained an almost daily meditation practice, I would say, until a couple of years ago, not even a couple of years ago, it's like a year and a half ago or so. Um, and so now my practice is much more intermittent as I've had my daughter, but I've also done like a 10 day silent meditation retreat. So how, how old is your daughter? How old is your daughter? She is 13 months. Boom, dude. That's, you know, I always say having a little baby is like scotch taping your kidney on the front of your car. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, there's nothing to keep you fixed in the present moment. Like having a little baby you're responsible for that could dart anywhere. And she's just starting to walk. Oh, man. Congratulations. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. All right. That's good. That's good. I'm just, you know, I just wanted to get a sense like you could have told me that you were a, a Theravadan Buddhist. I just wasn't curious. I was just curious. Cool. All right. <laughs> With my parents, that'd be a little bit of a surprise. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you for joining us on this uh, Mindful Voices, which is um uh, as you are well aware, it's it's these conversations are about how practitioners of mindfulness awareness meditation bring that practice into their ordinary lives, and particularly into their careers and their livelihoods, but but generally into their or, into our ordinary lives. So so uh, thank you for jumping in on this conversation. You know, just a, a little bit about you to the audience. Of course, I'll ask you to say more about you yourself later. But um, Andrew is a um, uh, consultant 
with some some of the some of the, the more sexier uh, consultancies like Mercer and Bain. I mean, I don't think Mercer's around anymore, right? I mean, they got merged, didn't they? Or So, yeah, so so Mercer had been acquired by Marshall McLennan Companies. They were part of a large professional services conglomerate, uh, even when I worked for them uh, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, I used to, we used to use Mercer for HR stuff back when I was in publishing. So so for our audience, you, you're a consultant with those. You have your MBA from the University of Chicago, economics from Emory. And, you know, it's interesting in looking at your background that, and this is a fun part of being a consultant because I do a, a consulting as well, not like you do, but, you know, is you get to get into so many different industries. You know, I, I saw from your background that you've done Salesforce development, you know, merger integration, and then most recently some higher ed work where I've been doing some work as well in higher ed. So we'll explore that together. Um and then you've been practicing mindfulness awareness meditation since you were six years old. That's uh, and what you, you're 18 now. How old are you now? <laughs> <laughs> I am 34. 34. As my doctor likes to remind me. Yes. <laughs> you're a young man. You've been practicing since you were very young. So, so welcome, welcome. Um, let me uh, let me let me start off this conversation with 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 this, and it, it really has to do with your father. Patton, you know, uh, you know, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about him. As you are well aware, your father was a real pioneer in the area of applied mindfulness. And he and I, as you are well aware, worked together, did cool stuff. We we ran some conferences and helped some universities like Virginia Tech and Westchester University roll out applied mindfulness conferences together. Um, and as you know, your dad wrote the, the, the book, uh, what is it, The Inner Advantage, uh, about how attorneys can use uh, this practice in the practice of law. And uh, he and I would have fun conversations about that. But I guess I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, what was it like? What was it like to be with your dad? I mean, I, I loved your dad. I was like a Southern gentleman, you know, you know, get that. <laughs> Yeah, it was a Southern lawyer from Atlanta. But what did you learn from him? What, what was it like for you as a young, young boy growing up with him and, 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 and really seeing how he was working with the, the, this whole notion of applied mindfulness? Yeah, well, Michael, first, um, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I, I've been a big fan of the podcast that you've done so far as part of the Mindful Voices series. So it is an honor to be here today. And I'm, I'm happy we get to spend some time together this evening. Um. My, uh, what, what did I learn from my father? That is a good question. I could probably spend a lot of time trying to, to list off all of the things that I learned from him. Um, unfortunately, I learned my golf game from him. I don't know if you ever went out to the courses, but no, was, I don't uh, play golf. I don't play golf. <laughs> yeah. Well, neither he nor I were very good at golf, but we both like getting out there and, um, just spending time together. And I guess the first thing that I would say I learned from my dad. And this may be a little meandering, but we'll see where it goes. Please, please. Is, you know, he, he was old when I was born. He was 47 when I was first born, which meant that he was 65 when I turned 18. And so he retired, you know, when I was eight or nine years old from law practice, bought an RV with my mom, uh, pursued sort of what would be considered a dream vacation, uh, <laughs> traveling around in an RV with your family around the country for a year, seeing right. um, 
um, seeing natural, like the natural wonders in this country. We went to the Everglades, we went to Big Bend National Park, we went to the Grand Canyon, we went up to Denali. Um, it was a really for, it was a really formative trip and it was an interesting time. I mean, I was nine, my sister was 13. Um, there was never a shortage of family drama, whether it was between me and my sister or, or (laughs) any other permutation you can think of. Um, but that was one of the first times where I saw that he prioritized family and the relationships that we have together, you know, as blood relatives, as Ken, as, you know, a relationship that is hard to replace. Um, certainly if it is, you know, some, somewhat functional, obviously families can be a source of a lot of trauma, but they can also be the source of a lot of joy. And so I saw my dad retire from a law career where he could have made a lot of money, but would not have been as present in our lives, spend an entire year of his life driving around trying to teach us about geology and astronomy and local history and things like that. Um, and, um, and then once we settled in Vermont, I saw him continue that, um, I guess that, that pattern of behavior where he would, he was continuing to, to try and find meaning in his life and try and, you know, be of service to others, which, you know, the work that you all did together. Um, and he spoke very highly of you too. So, uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure to, to, um, you know, li- listen to you and see some of the wisdom that he saw in you come through in this podcast series. But, um, he, he, he would always try to do what he thought was best for the family. And he would always put his family, my mom, my sister and me, um, you know, first. And, and I think that was one of the most important things that I, I gleaned from him that, you know, the relationships with your family, the relationships with, um, you know, those around you that you care about, um, those are, those are hard to replace. And, um, and so they're important to cherish and they're important to invest your time and energy into. I I really loved your father. You know, he was, he was a very noble man. No, he had a he had a presence that uh, that 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 was noble and and uh, uh, confident in his kind of gentleness. You know what I mean? And and that's a, that's another great point because I think that one of the things that I picked up from him by example was <laughs> trying to manifest kindness in the world. He was not always kind. He had a temper, which is unfortunately something I inherited uh, at times too. But I just found that as he went through the world and and interacted with people, whether it was, you know, friends bumping into at the grocery store or, you know, people working in retail or, or, you know, my friends when they would come to the house to cause trouble, um, you know, he, uh, he, he would, he would be, you know, happy and kind and, a warm presence. And I think that was one of the reasons why I enjoyed spending so much time with him and, and, and why it was, um, you know, such a pleasure to, to get to have, you know, my teenage years with, with a dad who wasn't at work and we could go golf every day during the summer. (laughs) And, you know, we could hang out in the evenings and watch TV and watch movies and and things like that. Yeah. I hear you. I I think that as, as uh, maybe we didn't say this to the audience, but your, your dad passed away. How many years ago now has it been? 2018, I believe. Yeah. And, um, 
he's still in my mind. You know, I can see his face. You know, it's I can see that 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 face of his, that smile, that little kind of laugh that he had. But you know, it, it, the the way he presented these teachings in, uh, well, he I guess he lectured at the Vermont bar and taught in various legal settings, helping lawyers understand the application of mindfulness in the practice of law. You know, around working with fear and uh, and and training the mind to attend to the experience that it's having, and also the sense of presence as as uh, as a as a big part of how one influences and how mindfulness, these kind of, he was kind of a pioneer in that, you know, and, and bringing that conversation into legal settings. Uh, uh, did you ever chat with him about that or, or explore those principles with him? Um, you know, I, so like you mentioned, I've been meditating for a long time. So I think I always saw the value of meditation. Um, you know, I don't know, if challenging him on the the concept of bringing mindfulness into legal settings was ever something that I really did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think so. I, but I like to think that he liked bouncing ideas off of me because I was of a younger generation and would have a different perspective. Um, we can, we can fact check this with my, with my mom, but I, I, I believe that I helped come up with the title the inner advantage for his book. Um, and so no, I, I no, got to, I got right to, now, that's, that's reality. I don't care what anyone says. It's history. Being it's on real. the record. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, so I would, you know, I would help him basically, I would say it now, like beat up the ideas that he was presenting. Right, right. And so I would try and help challenge the ideas as they were being structured. I guess not the concept of whether it would be valuable, but, but certainly thinking about, um, you know, how do you tailor this to an audience and right. how do you still make the, the the important parts of the message land while removing the more spiritual, right. potentially less inviting aspects to folks who are not looking for that type of experience in their life? Um, and I, I was actually thinking about that earlier today as, as we were talking, given that that's a lot of what you do, but in, in the business world, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. a lot of the consulting you do is that same sort of. Yeah. Um, same sort of approach rather than law, but in business. Yeah. And, and I do think that you and your dad found that balance, you know, in that book. I think that there's certain phrases in there that go right to the meat of the matter without bringing up any religious or non-secular or kind of woo-woo kinds of stuff. And um, So thank you. Thank you for working with your book. Well, and, and thank L- you. Let me let me be clear. I, I can't take any credit for the writing in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was yeah. But nonetheless, thank you, thank you, and I and thank you for your dad. Your dad was a wonderful man, and uh, I'm glad to see that you've uh, you know taken on a, a big part of his heart and his, his approach and brought them into your life too. So, all right. Well, let's now move on because it's the, you're on the show. Let's let's transition to you. So. You know, this consulting, why don't you explain to the audience what what does a consultant do when you it, working at a, at a high level with a Bain consultancy? I mean, this is the high level, high paid consultancy. Well, what, how would you kind of give us some headlines on, on exactly what is it that you men and women do up there? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's a great question. Uh, I think it's the most common question that I get when people ask me like what I do. I say, oh, I'm a consultant. Like, well, what do you consult? That doesn't really tell us much of anything. Um, and, and so the, the way that I try to describe it, because Bain's approach to consulting is um, probably the most generalist. So in general, we, we don't specialize in an industry or function, but we'll work across industries and across functions within the business and across various sort of capability areas, we call it, um, to, to try and I guess to, to put it simply, we help organizations solve problems. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, they are some of the most important problems that the organization faces at a given time. Um, but then there's also times we help out on very specific, very tactical challenges that um, that they can't crack on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we do to sort of solve problems is we have an approach of breaking down and analyzing complex problems into much more manageable analytical units, I guess, chunks, we say, we like, what, what are the buckets? What are the categories that we can break this problem down to? And then when we think about the various dynamics at play, whether it is, uh, you know, different competitors, products in a market, um, whether it is, you know, the impact of, say, the decoupling of the US and China on supply chains, what are all of the implications of the you know, the dynamics in the situation that we're, we're supporting our clients in that we can provide a a more objective point of view on. Mm -hmm. So the clients typically have uh, years of experience in the industry, the actual people that we're working with at these large enterprises. And, and like you mentioned, higher, higher education institutions, you know, we work with a range of nonprofits as well. Um, You know, private equity funds and other investors will work with organizations, uh, you know, pretty much every type except for governments really. And, What we do is we try to take our objective third-party research approach and approach to problem solving and and work with our clients to leverage their internal expertise, their knowledge. Of course, we have experts at Bain as well, um, but in my role, I'm sort of trying to draw on those resources within Bain, bring the right clients to the table and and figure out, okay, what, what is the... What's the ideal solution that we could get to? And then what is the practical solution that we can actually put into place given the realities of the business that we're operating in? Yeah. You know, I got it. Obviously, thank you. You help, help our audience understand generally some problems. I hope so. <laughs> you, know, you know, as you can imagine, I've worked with many a consultant, consultancy in my career. One of the big challenges is the ability of the lead consultant or the partner to build trust and and build confidence in the authority that the person brings to the conversation. As you have experienced, I'm quite sure, that there's a whole genre of business people that come in with a certain level of cynicism immediately to outside experts. Uh, how, do you, how do you build that confidence? How do you, how do you get the measure of, of a, because you, you, they have to trust, you know, and the, what I call mm-hmm. emergent authority. You know, you, your expertise, the chemistry, your wisdom, your follow-through, 
your reliability, all of these things build an atmosphere where your authority, your, your voice is increasingly trusted. But how do you, what advice do you have? What, what, what is your lessons that you've learned, you know, in building healthy, trustworthy, and reliable relationships with decision makers and clients? Yeah, I mean, that... <laughs> You, you put it well, you clearly have experience in this space because that is one of the, the most difficult challenges and one of, the biggest, um, one of the biggest contributors to whether a project will be successful or not is that ability to build trust and to be viewed as, you know, a trusted advisor. I feel like that's a phrase that I've heard since I started, you know, consulting at Mercer 11 years ago is how do you, how do you serve as a trusted advisor, um, not just a provider of data or a provider of analytics or whatever, you know, um, specific, um, specific task is being provided to you, but, but how do you, um, how do you build that relationship in a way that, um, that creates, that creates trust and creates space for uncertainty and for solving, for actually solving the problems together and not just not saying, Oh, I'm going to hand over a solution to you, or you're going to tell me the solution and then I'll put it on my fancy slides and play it back to you. <laughs> um, and, and, and neither of those in, in neither of those situations is the consultant going to be as effective as they can um, in, in the um, as in the case where they actually can serve in that trusted advisor capacity and, and, you know, help jointly problem solve to get to the, the best, the best of all possible solutions. So how do you do it? So how do you do it? Yeah. How do I do it? Uh, you know, it's a question that I ask myself every day. I was talking with colleagues about that, uh, how to do it more and more effectively. Um, and I, so I would say certainly um, executing on a plan to, to, to build that trust is, uh, is, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's easier said than done. I think there are a few things that can cultivate that relationship and, and cultivate that atmosphere of trust. So I would say the first is, is a word you mentioned is reliability. You know, you need to do what you say you're going to do. Um, you need to be honest about what you're representing and the limitations of what it is you're representing. And you need to be transparent about the downside risks. And so all of those things to me fall under the, the category of being reliable because if you fail to be honest and transparent on any of those dimensions, um, your client may get blindsided and therefore, even if they trust you up front, they won't trust you down the road. Right. Um, the, the second I would say is to, um, I think to be receptive to fair criticism. You know, there's a, um, there's a constant, possessive instinct when we come up with something, whether it's an essay that we write or an argument that we create or a, you know, a chart that we build that we think really tells the story of what's happening. And, um, and there's a, a tendency to defend the, to defend that thing that is mine, that thing that I built. And, and in doing so, if you're possessive over your own creations, 
then you will be blind to the valid feedback and criticism that other people can provide. And sometimes they provide it skillfully and sometimes they provide it very bluntly. (laughs) Depending on that, it can make it easier or harder to accept. But I think showing the ability to to not only, um, I don't know whether it's give or take in this situation, but to both give and take to provide insight and then to receive wisdom and input from others. to, to show that responsiveness. I think that's, that's the second, you know, I guess tactic that you could deploy. And then I think the third is a little bit of a softer skill, but it's just, um, displaying human emotion and trying to connect with people at a human level. Um, whether this is just like a little bit of small talk before you get started or understanding what people's weekends plans are. You know, I I talked to a client of mine where I think I was fairly successful at this and we started talking about, oh, well, you know, he was going out to the go-kart track with his son that weekend. And so he needed to be out the door by 4 p.m. on Friday. And so we needed to like end this meeting definitely on time because he was divorced and, you know, didn't get to see his son that much. And this was his son's birthday. And so this is all, this is very important. And starting, starting to get beyond the veil of, oh, I'm an expert in this area of finance that I work in to, you know, I'm a dad who's trying to maintain that relationship with my son. Um, I think that humanization allows you to um, build a foundation of a relationship that is deeper than just the necess- you know, the potentially transactional work that you're engaged in. You know, I, thank you, thank you. I think the, the things I would accent there is the, the, the reliability. You know, a, a consultant has to have the right kind of urgency. You know, you know, really, I call it sort of being in the trenches. You know right next to the person and have the right sense of urgency, which is the reliability. It's the energetic quality of the reliability, you know. Uh, And the other, in terms of the iterative quality of of a consultancy, where you're able to take feedback, guidance, adjust your view, take in input from the client, and then the humanization. Yeah, I think think that's spot on. You know, the, the reason why I bring it up, Andrew, is... I'm a I'm a big believer in that the mindfulness practice cultivates natural social intelligence skills, the ability to listen effectively, to be vulnerable, not vulnerable just from the point of view of being, oh, it's not like I'm a vulnerable person, but more from the point of view of being available, utterly available and human in your availability. Uh, an authentic connection with someone. It's not just a transaction. It's not a financial relationship. This is an authentic human moment because often, as you are well aware, many, not all the time, but often these men and women you're consulting to, you know, this is to, this is their business. This is their this is their career. This is the they're living in a risk. You know, their lives not lives, but you know, they're well to a great degree their livelihood and who they are is yeah. at risk. You know. So this, I've always found, at least from my point of view, that when one does the practice well, it unleashes these natural social intelligence abilities to not just be trapped in your mindset, but to be available to others, you know. Um, How do you see mindfulness helping you do what you do? 
Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I totally agree with your point around consultants need to have a sense of urgency. You know, we're we're being brought in and being paid more as a company than you know they would pay an employee for the time period. And so when we're doing our job at our best, we serve as force multipliers for our clients where they want to do more than they possibly can do, even if they work 24 hours a day. And so our mandate is how can we help them do as much of that vision as possible um, in a way that's still sustainable for our people. And so that means being efficient, um, finding the most effective way of doing something and, um, and, and prioritizing and triaging all of the various demands on our time and on our clients' business. And I think that point around, you know, it's it's their livelihood, it's their identity, it's their sense of self. If you've been working at a company for 20 years and you've grown up in that company, um, you know, the outside consultant, there's there's a lot of risk that, you know, they're going to make you look bad or they're going to take your ideas and claim credit for them. And I think that's things that not good consultants do. Well, you're going to see things. They don't want other people to really kind of look at necessarily. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. I think um, I think in that case though, then then uh, then then that would be um, a fair. <laughs> that you those are the kinds of things that you bring outside advisors in for. If someone is um, if someone is you know committing malfeasance. Well, no, I'm not to... going that far. I'm going that. Oh, you've been <laughs> you've been you've been you know. Yeah, I remember one business I was working with where they had a large sales force because you've done Salesforce. They had a large mm-hmm. uh, sales force that had uh, an administrative arm that tracked commissions on sales. Book to sale, tracked commission, boom, boom, boom. And they had, I guess, maybe 30 people in that department that were tracking the sales and the commissions and all that kind of stuff. Literally within the same on the same floor of the building over there was an order entry department doing the exact same thing, <laughs> but wasn't being paid by the salespeople to make sure they got their checks. Huh. And it was, you know, they, you, you could lose 40 headcount right there. Not that I like firing people, but they had created this infrastructure for the salespeople to make themselves feel comfortable about getting paid. And the, and frankly, the CEO was kind of embarrassed that he had let this thing grow over the years and it was not cheap Yeah, because it had a separate software, separate tracking, separate reporting, you know, separate pay structures, you know, and to that point, you know, you you've allowed effectively, you weren't paying attention and you allowed a, instance of mismanagement to spiral to the point where now you've got 30 or 40 people's lives that are dependent on this mismanagement, you know, and now you've got a, a moral qualm about yeah. what, uh, what to do in this situation. Yeah, well, and for me as the HR guy at the time, it was embarrassing because there were 40 people who were doing a job that was unnecessary. Now that's not cool. People want to really contribute. No. They don't want to do that, but, but I'm sorry I'm bringing this conversation off in this direction. No. But my point was, it wasn't so much about fiscal irresponsibility or that kind of thing. It was more that a consultant often discovers things that had not been attended to. 
that had been ignored, whether it's market conditions, competitive activities, infrastructural problems, you know, and that that, that can often be difficult to to help people see. And, and I think to, to to bring back to your original question about how does mindfulness help, I think, you know, one of the ways to 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 try and still affect positive change in a situation like that is to you know understand the perspective of the various you know client stakeholders who are the people that you are working with today what is their point of view what is their perception of themselves of their organization um and 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 then figure out how can we position the work that we're doing as not about you know, pointing out things that were done wrong in the past necessarily, because let's be honest, everybody has opportunities to improve almost everything in some one dimension or another, but, but more about how do we do the right thing going forward for the company, for the people who work for it, for the customers that we serve, you know, that, that, that's, I think a reframe that you can try to deploy, but if you're not mindful in your interactions with those clients in the first introductions, you're not going to be able to pick up on their cues and how they really feel and read between the lines because you're going to be thinking too much about, okay, well, what is my follow-up question that I want to ask? What is the next thing on the interview guide that I need to get to? What is the time? What's the next meeting that I have? Oh, I just got an email. I'm getting pings on Teams and Skype and, you know, Outlook is blowing up. And Let me me repeat back what I hear you saying. What you're saying is, you know, one of the downstream impacts of mindfulness in terms of consulting is it, it, it helps you attend to the social cues that give you a genuine understanding of the needs of your client versus what a consultancy tends to do is try to collect information that helps them meet their objective. Right. And that kind of attentiveness to the social cues helps you more skillfully influence, guide, and advise. Is that what I heard you say? I think that's very well put, better than I said it. And I would say that's just a more expansive view of the information that you're gathering. Right. And so when we talk about having to build a trusted advisor relationship and able, in order to actually help you know, clients succeed and put them in a place where they are willing to, to listen to the hopefully good advice you're providing, um, Picking up on those social cues and and um, you know being able to incorporate the various social and political dynamics within an organization into not just the recommendation but how you socialize the recommendation, how you build the recommendation and involve people throughout that process. I think that's um, that's all just like it's it, it, that that becomes your own personal force multiplier where you're you're able to to think about the things beyond just the numbers. Um, the numbers on the page or the, you know, outside research reports or, or whatever. Yeah. And one other example, Michael, from early in my career, I think I was two or three years out of undergrad. I had an econ degree and a political science minor. You know, I'd never taken any business courses. I was good with numbers, but I didn't really have any business background to speak of. But I was at a consulting firm and going to clients and trying to help them do things. And, you know, this was at Mercer. We were doing HR consulting. And, um, you know, I could, I could build a spreadsheet and, and do, you know, Excel analysis pretty well. Um, I could copy those things into charts and put them into PowerPoint. Um, but then when we were in the meetings, 
being able to pivot between the work that we had created for this project and drawing on a reservoir of experiences, you know, from decades of working with clients in this industry, I just didn't have that repository in my head of all those experiences to be able to respond as effectively as, you know, the partners that I was working with at the time. And so one way that I tried to add value there was to, you know, I would take notes, I would be diligent, I would try and respond if I thought I had something smart to say, but I would try to scan the room and keep an eye on what different people's reactions were to the to to the proposed recommendation to the suggestion that was thrown out if we're in workshops how are people interacting with each other um and i found that became one of the most valuable things that i could do and and how i became a trusted advisor to the partners that i was working with because i could say oh well you know the the vp really sort of seemed to just turn his like turn his head and 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 you know cross his arms you can't really see on the, yeah, the yeah. screen but yeah. you know but, and I got I got into sort of reading body language books and trying to understand like how do people put up those defensive mechanisms and how do you witness when that happens and what what drove that to 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 be the case yeah. um to try and, and to try and help break down those barriers yeah, see I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I one of the things that I have found and I'm a big proponent of this is, uh, and, you know, Goldman in his book, Social Intelligence, has written about this, but essentially we're hardwired to resonate with each other. We are hardwired. Uh, That we are able to read each other's cues, pick up on the kind of nonverbal invitations uh, insights, concerns that each other's ha- each other has, we're hardwired for that. However, we tend to speed past it because our minds are not trained to unleash these natural qualities of the mind. And we all know that by doing this practice, uh, you know, uh, self awareness, you know, skyrocket. And all you have to do is sit there for twenty minutes and not do anything. You become self aware. You might not like it, but you're self-aware. And then you regulate. You escort your attention from a thought to the experience, and you begin to self-regulate. So self-awareness, self-regulation, that's all a very natural aspect of the practice. But the next aspect of this is this attunement with your experience, whether it's just the natural breeze in the room or the fact that that person feels sad to me. Mm-hmm or how that person can tell a joke really well or, or whatever it happens to be, you know? So I, I do, I, I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up that, you know, while you actually use those skills as a way to sort of enhance your partner's ability in the room, uh, the consultancies when you're a young man, you know, I, I have noted and uh, have trained uh, business people in meditation from the point of view of unle- unleashing these abilities to attune, resonate, read the situation well, pause a little bit. You know, don't just listen to words, listen to body, tone, atmosphere, this kind of uh, skill. It's a skill, you know. Well, be- being able to, to pause and be comfortable with silence and be comfortable with space is. Um, it's not a super common trait I found and and people will often try and fill that space. But when you fill that space, sometimes, 
you know, there are people like I'm very extroverted. And so I'll, you know, I'll talk as pretty much whenever people give me a chance to. Um, and so I've tried to consciously dial that back and consciously not say the first thing that comes to mind to make sure that, that we hear from other people who are important and influential and may have great ideas that will make the answer to our problem, you know, even, even clearer, even better than, than it would have if we had just sort of like been in a race to see, okay, who can talk, who can jump in next? Um, and, um, but, but then there is, you know, there, there is also always the pressure of, you know, you're, you're, you're being paid to have an opinion Um, and you need to have an opinion and you need to have a point of view on something. Um, So, uh, so, so there's those sorts of dynamics and, you know, I, I I try to thread the needle as much as I can, but I cannot claim to be a master of it as of yet. You know, it's interesting. I do a lot of work with data scientists and they're, they, you know, they have all of the data that you need, but they don't know how to deliver it ways that people can embrace it. They don't know, they don't have good influencing skills. So I hear you, you know, men, enterprise leaders want expertise. That's why they're paying you the big bucks. But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, what they're looking for is to be confidently influenced. That's what they're really looking for. Yeah. Because you got the expertise, you got the data. It's how do you confidently influence me to use that data, understand that data, to take a risk with that data? That's what they're really looking for. Yeah. Let's 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 move on. Let's move on to uh, on to the, this other topic. I noticed that you do some work. You were you're, you've recently done some work in higher ed, which is fascinating. I've been doing some work there, especially since what is it? The data shows this is somewhat old, but like what? 60% of, of liberal arts colleges are going to close over the next 10 years or some crazy number. Are you familiar with that number? No, I, I have not heard that. The 60 is probably high. It's probably more like 30 or 40. And I, I don't have the data, but there's a lot of small colleges that cannot maintain the infrastructural issues. But anyway, it looked to me, I can't remember what I was reading. Maybe you can help me understand that you were, Looks like you were working on some social responsibility aspects with with a university there to help students of low low income have a higher graduation rate. Was that is that is that my recollection accurate? Yes, yeah, that's that's correct. So um, we were working with a, a local higher ed institution, a university um, that had over the last 15 or 20 years, increased their graduation rates from the sort of low 30% up to sort of 55, 57, 59% in a 15 year period. And then because they were, um, you know, often the first step, when you look at the students who go there for two years to start their educational career and then transfer to another program, the graduation rates were north of 80%. So that's, a very meaningful improvement. Um, but one of the most impressive parts of this was that they did it while um, eliminating equity gaps. That's the official lingo in the higher ed world. But what that means in, in plain human English is that Black, Hispanic, low-income, and first-generation students now graduate above the average of the university. Right. And 
And, and that, those two things in parallel, there are a number of other statistics. They're, you know, incoming SAT scores, their incoming GPAs declined over that period. So the predictors of success, you know, if you sort of looked outside in, um, it, it's not like they were just cherry picking the best students. They were actually identifying ways to break down systematic barriers to find where students who did not have the family networks or social relationships outside of the school um, to help them navigate these complex bureaucracies right. where, where those people were falling out of the system and then identified ways to proactively address those to, to keep them on board. And sometimes it would be grants as, as low as a hundred or $500 to pay off parking tickets because you had to park illegally because you were running from your job to class and you just had to park and get into class. And so you got a parking ticket as a result. And then that could have kept you from going on to the next quarter and enrolling in classes or the school could say, we'd rather keep you in school than collect those parking tickets. <laughs> so that, that's just one, one, one example of the type of, uh, of program that they implement. Yeah, it's a beautiful example. It's a beautiful example. I mean, and, and I wish, I wish I could take credit for any of that work. They did all that on their own. What we helped with was um, they had had the success. And as a result, higher education institutions from all over the country, um, HBCUs, and then other institutions, including, you know, Harvard, Vanderbilt, um, very prestigious elite institutions asked them, how did, how did you do this? How did you eliminate equity gaps? This is a problem that we're struggling with as well. And they were overburdened by the demands on their time while they still had to, um, you know, their, do their full-time jobs of administering this university. And, uh, and so what we did was we helped them, um, you know, basically look at the higher education effectively consulting and support landscape to find a niche where they weren't going to competing weren't going to be competing with a bunch of incumbents we helped them define the various programs across a number of different dimensions of of um of their um you know their their approach to build what was sort of their secret sauce um how they were able to do this and and then we built out a set of offerings that they could provide to other institutions in a structured and scalable way um and so that the first the first piece of work that I did with them, uh, I did. There was lots of us involved in this, but the work, the work that we did was was to to do all of those um, all of those uh, you know different we call them work streams that I just described, and then build a cohesive vision for what they could accomplish over the next ten years. Those materials were then used to fundraise for this nonprofit that they were setting up that was going to be in, independent of but affiliated with. I don't know if that's the exact right terminology, but it was basically a separate institution that would effectively provide educational consulting services to these higher ed institutions that needed help mm-hmm. with the goal of, you know, increasing graduation rates right. um, by a meaningful amount at, the, at their clients. And so then the second phase of work was they had successfully fundraised. Um, they had hired a bunch of staff. They had brought on 30 plus clients and, um, and, and then they realized that they needed help figuring out how do we build a case for change? How do we motivate these schools to action? How do we break down silos across departments, with, you know, history, English, business, math at these institutions to get people on board with the changes in the structure to, you know, how they deliver, um, how they deliver coursework, how they deliver financial aid, how they deliver tutoring, all of that stuff. 
Um, and so we help them figure out, here's how you build a diagnostic and here's how you serve as a sort of consultant and advisor um, to, to other organizations in an effective way. Good luck with breaking down silos in higher ed. Good luck. You know, the, there's always degrees, you oh know, there's God, degrees of freedom. It's so, they're so rigid. It, the, the thing that I found in the work that I was doing is, uh, well, there were many things, but in this area is the health and well-being as kind of a key ingredient for low income men and women moving from neighborhoods of high risk, difficult, traumatic childhoods uh, into higher educational settings where there were expectations on how they would socially conduct themselves, engage, and and that many of them had uh, health and well-being challenges. And it, it was it, it, one of the things that was striking to me was that the, the model that high schools used in working with young people with um, kind of emotional problems, I forget the name of it. There, there's like a department where you help kids that maybe have trauma. Behavioral health. Maybe. Yeah, it's and then there's certain budgets for all that. But they're kind of cleaved out of the mainframe, mainstream they're helped in a particular way. And then when college comes, everyone comes in there equally. And there was this was very interesting model of really making health and well-being as a common uh, kind of uh, resource for everybody. Where and it wasn't just for your deficiencies, the yoga, meditation, diet, health, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, services uh, were provided so that so that people of low income could come in and get the services that they weren't getting prior in the neighborhoods they were coming from and the difficult families they were coming from i found that very very fascinating did you bump into any of that dynamic in your in your studies i mean in your analysis so i think the approach that they took was not as centered on health and, and wellness, but I hear a lot of echoes in, in what you're describing and in, in the work that, um, that our client had done to support their students. So I do believe there were programs to help make sure that, that folks had sort of meals when they were on campus and their sort of food pantries and things like that available as, um, as resources for, for, for students who needed that kind of support. I think there's also, um, you know, you talked about, in high school, carving out the students yeah, from ed. the it's main population. Special education, special ed. That's what special education, that. right? And 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 so I think the way that that they viewed students that needed extra support. There's first you want to try and get to students in high school and start preparing them for college. Then let them know that college is actually a possibility for them, and then start teaching them the skills and providing summer programs to to get them. Um, to get them on board. The second was look at your applicant pool. And there's um, there was something, it was called the summer melt, where the students would apply and they would get accepted to college. And then somewhere along the way, they wouldn't show up in the fall. Right. And the question was why? And maybe it was they didn't know they had to apply for FAFSA. 
Maybe it was they didn't have they they didn't qualify for you know the math courses that they needed to get into. There's you know any number of reasons why that might happen. Yep. And what they started doing was looking at the data that they had, which they collected very meticulously, to identify what was causing people to fall out of the program right. in, during this critical period. And then it became we're providing a freshman year experience course where people, we actually tell people, here's what it's like to go to college. Here are all the things that you're going to have to demand. And here are the resources that are available to help you if you ever have challenges. Advising, advising in a way that was effective and proactive and data-driven, that became another way of helping students once they were actually in the door. And then making sure you were providing um, tutoring support from peers yeah. and mentors, providing supplementary instruction from, uh, you know, like the academics, the professors themselves, um, to make sure that folks who were not doing well, they had, um, I can't remember what the exact term was, sort of like flagship courses, where if you do poorly in, let's just say, like, Calc 1, right then it's likely that you're going to not do well in a number of other courses that are really critical. Or if you fail in the first, you know, freshman English class, you're likely not going to build the skills. And so then it was, we need to get people help early and often to make sure that you get them up above that, the the bar they need to pass. So they feel confident and and are able to continue to progress. Yeah. 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 This is in the same realm. I, I, it was very interesting. We'll move on to uh, two more topics that we could talk about before we close. Uh, but it was fascinating to me about how uh, COVID, to a great degree, really exposed a lot of these uh, uh, dynamics of young people coming into college settings with a level of social disorientation, whether it's emotional whether it's skill set, not being able to navigate institutions. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, and I, the, the interesting insight was that this model of special education, that was that, that's for the people who can do it right. Oh, but this is how you do it over here. The college was saying, no, you really want to create a health and well-being resource for everybody, whether you're really good at going to college or you're having to, you want to have a wider range of invitation to make this as part of the, the institution rather than kind of special eddy. Anyway, I, I, th- I found that fascinating. And in doing so, eliminate the stigma yeah. associated with that. I mean, I think that's one of the big things that 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 type of approach, a more sort of like universalistic approach to delivering those services, which makes a lot of sense to me. Here's another one. We have. We have a little more time here. Thank you for your time, as always. Thank you. It wasn't too long. It was a few years ago. McKinsey was real big on mindfulness. Do you recall that? Were you following that at all? There was a. They did a lot of things about what what was going to define the future of health and well being in organizational settings and generally culturally. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that the head person that ran McKinsey was a meditator, and they had actually begun to look at a practice around bringing mindfulness into leadership, organizational settings. Sure enough, they were kind of saw the the trend, so to speak, the secularization of it in organizational settings. Do you, what do you see? You you go from organizations to organizations, or is your antenna up 
about where mindfulness is being applied in, in workplace settings? Do you see any of it? Or, or what, 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 what's, your, what's your take on that? That's a good question. It definitely sounds to me like a trend, like hopping on a trend, quite frankly. Right. You know, I mean, Bain pays for Headspace for all of its employees. So like I have a free Headspace premium account. Right. Um, I can't say that I really use it. I kind of prefer to meditate in silence, but I know that that can be a really valuable entry point for a lot of people. I would not say though that I have seen meditation or mindfulness practices very systematically applied right. at at really any of the clients that I've worked with. Right. Um, I've heard, you know, so there will be um, there will be mindfulness programs. Bain would sponsor mindfulness programs for us, you know, during COVID, um, you know, summer of 2020. We would have, there were a few of the health and well-being where mindfulness was sort of prominently featured and they would have different speakers come in and provide meditation instruction. It's interesting because to me, meditation has always had a bit of a spiritual component to it. Sure. I'd say a lot of, I would say not just a bit, for me personally, me personally, yeah, it's fundamentally a spiritual gesture from the point of view of spiritual meaning, meaning in one's life. Yeah. You know, but go on, go ahead. And so then the taking mindfulness um, and putting it into a business setting, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it may be a good thing for people to do for their mental health and well-being. It is, I would say it's going to be hard to draw a direct line between that and like the return on that investment that you might get. (laughs) I would say if anything, you might wind up with fewer employees wanting to work as much as you want them to work when they connect with a more deeper spiritual component of their life. You think so? Um, <laughs> I, I think it depends on the kind of work that you're doing. And I uh, think if enough. maybe that's, that's fair, that's fair enough. That's a good point. I, I, I'm, I'm very lucky that I, I love my job yeah. and I, this is the best job I've ever had, but most jobs that I've had, you know, and I, I've worked in a lot of like manual labor. I worked um, as a maintenance man at Karma Choling. I worked as a breakfast and lunch chef there. I worked doing the buffet line at a local diner. I worked as a bookstore clerk in, in Caroline DeMeo's bookstore, Northern Lights. Um, you know, so I had a lot of, and then I was a roofer for a while. I was Ooh, a painter. You know, I, I did, a, yeah, it's it's a tough job. And it made me very appreciative of a desk job once I got it, quite frankly. Um but, but those jobs, you know, they're challenging. And then even when I had desk jobs, there were times where it was like, is what I'm doing making a difference? Does anyone care? Is this adding meaning? You know, I heard people say, work gives you a sense of purpose. That was a common refrain that I've heard frequently in political debates and political, you know, from, from pundits where, oh, people need work to give themselves a sense of meaning. And I think because there's a line between the work that we do and the 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 fact that we need to work in a productive manner and that productive capacity adds to society and then generates a paycheck that we can use at home to support our families. You know, there's, there's that line where I think when I was younger, I was sort of cynical where I'm, you know, I was like, well, if you're like flipping burgers and making fries or, you know, hauling roof shingles up to the top of a roof, you know, how much meaning am I getting out of this? I don't know. You know, it was like, we would use the paycheck to buy beer on the ride home and we were driving in a van and um, in the back, mind you, not, not driving the van myself. Um, and, and, and so um, I guess it's, it's, 
it's one of those things where, where I, I haven't seen it. I remember the push for it. I, I will see, I think what I have seen, and this was mostly pre-COVID because honestly, we do a lot of work remotely. And so you miss the impromptu interactions. You miss seeing the things on the bulletin board. I remember seeing things on the bulletin boards at clients that would say meditation group this time in this room. Right. And so you would see that spontaneous organization. Yep. And that way, people that feel magnetized to it. Yeah. That want that that want to seek that um, feel that, that that that's a way that you can have a sort of selection effect that generates a positive result. You're singing my song. You're singing my song. I, I'm I, I've been saying this. I'm getting older now. I'm getting older. I'm old now. Uh, I, I've always found a programmatic approach to mindfulness in the workplace is more an inflicting of mindfulness on people. <laughs> I mean, it's like. Uh, uh, but when you create an atmosphere that magnetizes interest and it self-organizes, you know what I mean? Obviously, you need to have an atmosphere that respects it and appreciates it and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I have found, particularly in pharmaceutical settings where I do a lot of work, that that naturally occurs. You know, there's a group of people who like meditating. They bring in a few experts. It gets around that there's a Wednesday meditation session. People show up. And that kind of organic organizing dynamic really does seem to be the approach rather than, you know, we have a mindful organization and all people have mindfulness inflicted on them, you know. You know so I, I, you're singing to the, to the uh, believer here. But, but let, let, me, let me just say something about the spiritual aspect. The reason why I, I, I'm, uh, I'm not afraid of, 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 of speaking about spiritual dynamics in the workplace is because, at, you know, I do, I've done a lot of work with leaders, leadership development, et cetera, et cetera, is when you really boil down some of the most difficult challenges of leaders, the challenges almost invariably are what I call spiritual challenges, like confidence having confidence in the midst of uncertainty. And that, that is a spiritual issue at its core, you know, inspiring the best in others. That's not a technique. That's not something that you get a formula and a, some kind of spreadsheet and feed the beast with. That's a spiritual, that's a spiritual thing that you care about people that you can you can see what is decent and good and wholesome and talented in people and you want to inspire that mm -hmm. so i don't shy away from uh, the spiritual aspect of the workplace but i do uh, i don't like the whole religiosity of spirituality you know mm -hmm. um, in any case so yeah well and yeah, so so I really I like that um, that framing and description of of spirituality and, and tying it to, to to traits that are actually valued in the workplace the the confidence the ability to inspire others the ability to to project a vision into the world of what you think is a better place right. and how to make it so yep. um, whether it's you know whether it's in your finance or HR organization or in your company as a whole or in your community outside of the four Absolutely. walls of of yep. your of your business. And, um, and so I really like that, that, um, you, um, we'll, we'll see if I can make it fit in my schedule, but I'm not, now I'm thinking I've, I've always toyed around with having like a Wednesday meditation session, you know, 30 minutes, just sitting in, in a conference room quietly, <laughs> not talking about anything. Yeah. Um, 
So, so maybe, maybe I'll, I'll bring that back up, but there's one thing that we're past an hour now. Um, one of my favorite podcasters always says, now that you're past an hour, you can let your hair down. And, and so one, one of the things that I heard when you're talking about the inflicting meditation and mindfulness on people is, is like, you're taking the spiritual practice and you're saying like, we're going to get an extra 50 bips of profitability this quarter because you all sat here and meditated. And, and it's, it reminded me of this, um, this, this joke I saw on the internet where it was like LSD in the sixties, like you're going to free your mind LSD today. If I take teeny tiny amounts, I can generate more productive capital for my boss. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so when I think about mindfulness in the workplace, I want to avoid that ladder setting where it's a tool, you know, to be more, um, it's a tool to like generate more money, which feels yep. like the cynical materialist yep, totally. spin on it. And more, it's a tool to make you feel more fulfilled. It's a tool to help you be fulfilled and be connected with the people you work with, which well, is yeah, fundamentally yeah. a social enterprise. You're, you're, you're striking what I believe one of the critical points in understanding the application of mindfulness in organizational settings or in everyday life, which is this. We all... In particularly in business, we look at effort. And I've said this a billion times, and, and people in the audience have probably heard me say it if they've heard me talk before. We apply effort in order to achieve things. And we're all really good at it. Really. I mean, you just look at, I mean, just this computer that we're doing right here. This is amazing that we that we as human beings have worked to achieve this. So we're really good at the effort of getting somewhere and achieving stuff. Mindfulness is not that kind of effort. It's not the effort of getting somewhere. It's the effort of being somewhere. It's, it's the, and this effort of being is, is more about expressing qualities of the mind than achieving something. That, that's very dis, disconcerting to the typical modern workplace men and women. Because it's like, am I doing this right? How much do I have to do? It, you know, what's the result? There is no result. It's about becoming utterly familiar with your experience. That's not an achievement. <laughs> That's not something you get to. It's something that you express. So this effort of becoming familiar with your experience rather than achieving something is, is, is very intimate and very human. And, it's, and it d develops, it unleashes a whole set of human talents. Just being able to listen or to see or to appreciate an atmosphere or, uh, you know, pick up a cue that you would have sped past because you're trying to achieve something. And, that, that, and way too often, mindfulness is, well, how, if you only sit five minutes a day, your social intelligence skills will go up and your immune system will be repaired. It's like, guys, can we relax here? Can we just be here together? So uh, you and I resonate on that. Let me ask you this last, now that our hair is down after an hour, <laughs> let me ask you this final question, which I ask all my guests. You know, you're a young man, so you, you, you would be able to, you know, probably offer an answer to this that's more relevant, maybe? I don't know. But, you know, what, what three pieces of advice do you have to people uh, in, 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 in engaging mindfulness in, in, in a modern world? What, 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 what advice do you have for people who are going, you know, I, 
I think I'd like to do this, or I'd like to go on that journey. What 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 advice would you have? For the- you know, Michael, I knew the question was coming. I don't know if it makes it any easier to come up with three good pieces of advice, but I'll do my best. Good. Um, <laughs> so I think the first thing, if if people are considering it or have been doing it, is don't overthink it. Um, I think to 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 call back to some of the themes that we've been talking about, you know, there's a constant, I think there's a constant um, push in our culture today to optimize and to focus on, you know, tracking and measuring everything. And so you'll get apps that track your meditation and say, are you meditating more minutes today than you did yesterday? And what's your streak of meditating? And I think that if it helps you start the habit, that can be good, but you want to make sure that it's not just another distraction and not just another obsession. And, you know, the, I don't know who, whose quote this is, but the, the root of all of mankind's challenges is his inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. Right. That's at least a paraphrase of, of some sort of quote. Well, this way, if, if, if we can't find out who said it, you just said it. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely was not the first. So, um, so uh, I, I would say the first thing is, is don't overthink it and, and just, you know, just do it. <laughs> um, that's definitely Nike. So right. we, we know where that came from. <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the second piece of advice is don't limit yourself to applying mindfulness at work. Um, don't limit yourself to only applying mindfulness outside of your work. Um, think about mindfulness as uh, just a basic part of being human, just like balance and core strength and <laughs> getting a good night's sleep. Um, being mindful and being present, um, you know, road rage. I think you've talked about road rage in the past. It's something I struggle with too. I'll get a little road rage, especially here in Atlanta, and um, and then I'll be able to drop it pretty quickly. Um, but there are times when I can't drop it. You know, I, not road rage necessarily, but just right. like something feels off. Um, my wife, Nora, luckily does a great job of, you know, calling attention to this, maybe sometimes when I'm in denial about it, but I find that noticing that unpleasant feeling in my body, whether it's in because of a work situation or whether it's because of anxiety or fear that is manifesting as a result of, you know, a meeting that didn't go well, or, you know, a a rating that I'm uncertain about how it's going to come in. Um, you know, I think, or, or whether it's because, um, you know, I broke my wife's favorite ceramic bowl and now I have to tell her about it. And, and that's making, making me feel nervous. Um, taking the blinders off of mindfulness and, and just cultivating mindfulness practice in your life period, um, will make you sort of more in touch with, um, with, with yourself and therefore with other people. Uh-huh. Um, and so whether that's at work and whether that makes you more effective at work, that great. If, 
if it just makes you happier at work, whether or not that makes you more effective. I might say that if you're happier, you probably will be more effective by default. But, um, but, but so, 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 so don't overthink it. Don't limit it to work and and sort of as a result, don't try and quantify the benefits of it. Um, you know, just, just, you know, um, just, just do it and see what happens. And then I think the, the third thing, and this is one of my, my favorite quotes of all time from, from the famous orders, Bill and Ted is just be excellent to each other. Right. And, and I, I, um, I think that one of the things that troubles me the most about our current moment is the judgment of everyone else that can be so rewarded by people who agree with you, whether it's people who, you know, you you can, you can look down your noses at someone else who doesn't meditate because you meditate to take (laughs) one example that I've seen, or, you know, like, I feel like when meditation was all the rage in Silicon Valley, it's a, well, I'm, you know, I've achieved enlightenment and what have you achieved, you know, and it's, um, (laughs) I, I don't think I do actually. I would, <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> um, but but I think I think that that I said be excellent to each other. But finding that compassion for other people, right. um, and trying to like not worry about whether you're being made a fool of in a situation, um, but just you know being compassionate for the struggles that other people are going you know, having go on in the world, like we were, we were talking about the, the reaction, the negative reaction folks can have to consultants. And you can say, oh, well, this person's afraid we're going to find something bad in their organization, or they're afraid that, you know, they're going to be open about their ideas and you're going to present it as your own idea and take all the credit for it. And that's going to limit their advancement in a career that they view as, as a core part of their job. And so I think there's a lot of different ways to view and frame things. And if you try to take the posture of, compassion first, understanding first, kindness first, um, as embodied in that, you know, be excellent to each other phrase. Um, I think that, um, I think that, uh, will, will do a lot of good. Yeah. I think regardless of how many minutes you meditate a day. Amplify just a tiny bit of that last point is, you know, what, one of the things I learned over time is mindfulness awareness meditation is really fundamentally about making friends with yourself. You know, there's a tenderness toward oneself that occurs that, that it isn't a technique for mastering being human. So as to be more effective in life, (laughs) it's about making friends with yourself and being kind to yourself. And, and that tenderness, when actually unleashed in a very gentle way toward yourself on the cushion, naturally expresses out to others, like you're saying, you know, actually, would you be excellent with each other? Because first, you were excellent to yourself, you know, then you were kind to yourself. So um, that's a great note to end on there, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other final remarks before we close? Uh, I. I don't, I don't think so, but Michael, thank you for the time this evening. This was, I had a ton of fun, really appreciate the conversation and, and thank you for taking the time on a, on an evening late into the night to talk, talk about uh, all these, all these topics with me. It was wow. a, a real pleasure for me. Wow. You know, what would, what else would I be doing? 
you know, watching, I don't know, the great bake-off, British bake-off or something. This is, I got to hanging out with you is a lot of fun. So thank you. This is an honor and a joy, Andrew. And also, not to go back to your dad again, but, you know, I loved your dad so much. And I had such a good time with him doing stuff. And just to have this conversation with you about this topic it really it resonates with me deeply. So I appreciate your time and your joy and your cheerfulness. And congratulations on your 13-month-old baby. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I know uh, my dad was a great admirer of yours and a big inspiration for applied mindfulness training as well was, was the work that you were doing. Um, so it's, I, you know, it's just nice to actually get to interact one-on-one, um, not just have you teach meditation to me, but now we actually get to, <laughs> right. to, to have a dialogue about cool, some, of these, cool. right, some of these tricky topics. You're the best. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Great, Michael. Bye-bye. Mindful Voices is brought to you by Applied Mindfulness Training, a nonprofit devoted to helping you make the most of your human resources. Visit AppliedMindfulnessTraining.org to find free guided meditations, explore our publications and blog posts on mindfulness topics, and learn about our customized trainings to help you and your organization discover how to work with your mind. Let us know what you thought of the show. Email us at mindfulvoices at AppliedMindfulnessTraining.org. You can also connect with us on Twitter at AppliedMindTR or on Instagram or Facebook at Applied Mindfulness Training. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again soon.